0: Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as JJ Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu, the list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started.
1: A lot of war movies do this thing where they kill 40,000 extras and you're like, oh, that's that's a cool sequence. But for me, like, the important part was like, no, wars, war is hell. <laughs> to paraphrase, it's someone you love dying in. And I can't, I can't write a script in which you understand six million men dying in the mud, but I can write you loving one of those men and understanding his death.
0: Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week we're delighted to be joined by Christy Wilson-Cairns. Christy is the co-writer of one of this year's most hotly anticipated thrillers, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Audiences are in for a seriously gripping white-knuckle ride if that movie turns out to be anything like Christie's first produced feature film, The Incredible 1917. Co-written with director Sam Mendes, 1917 followed two British soldiers as they embarked on a nail-biting mission across No Man's Land in the First World War. With communication lines down, the lives of 1600 men rest on this duo delivering a message to a stubborn battalion captain that his soldiers are about to walk into an ambush. On release in 2019, the film garnered more attention for how it told its story, rather than the story itself. 1917 used long, intricately choreographed takes to give the impression of a story told across just two uninterrupted shots. It was championed as an unrelenting real-time glimpse into the horrors of war, unlike anything before it. But the movie's technical accomplishments would have felt empty, were there not an emotive plot powering it forward. In the conversation you're about to hear, Christy unpacks every detail of that plot, detailing the painstaking research that went into forming the film's characters. We also talk about her discarded plans for a mustard gas attack scene, why a certain central character simply had to die, and why it's so important a century on that the voices of those who suffered during World War One continue to be heard through film. Before we dive into this spoiler conversation, a quick reminder that if you like what we do and want to help the show continue to grow, we now have a Patreon page where you can do just that. For the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, supporters get a ton of perks, including access to issue one of our brand new digital magazine. A 51-page, beautifully designed collection of exclusive interviews and written versions of our most popular episodes to date. Head over to patreon.com forward slash if you'd like to get involved. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into my conversation with the excellent Christy Wilson-Cairns. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, that includes Tori Rahn and Lewis McNeil. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Christy, welcome to Script Apart. We're chatting a few days after the Venice Film Festival premiere of Last Night in Soho, which um, I'm really excited about. Um, I'm curious to know if you've recovered from that evening's festivities yet. I think if I got to premiere a film i have made with Edgar... In Venice, I probably wouldn't be in a fantastic state for podcasting for a good few days afterwards.
1: Um, no, I don't know if I'll ever recover. I think I might have left um, part of my soul there. Um, there was a lot of Bellinis, and um, yeah, there was a, a a dip in the Cipriani Hotel at three in the morning pool, which wasn't looked upon too fondly. But, um, but no, no, it was it was a lot of fun. I have probably a four day hangover. But yeah, what else are you going to do? Your film's in Venice,
0: get drunk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, of course, before Last Night in Soho, there was 1917, which is the movie we're discussing today. It was your first feature film. You were Oscar nominated for it. It, it seemed to have this immense impact um, culturally, becoming this water cooler conversation starter here in the UK. Uh, I'm curious to know um, how, how 1917 impacted you, how it must have changed your life, not just professionally of course you've gone on to all these amazing projects since but like kind of emotionally it, it seems like when you work on a film of this subject matter it must kind of alter your worldview a little bit to work on and research
1: yeah i mean massively also i, I mean i should point out 1917 is the first film i wrote that got made but it's like, yes. ten, it's like the 10th film I've wrote. And sometimes, you know, people look at your IMDb page and you go, oh, you just started with that. And you're like, no, no, <laughs> I did work up <laughs> to it a little bit. I don't know if I if I was like listening to that as a, as a starting writer, I would be totally demoralized. But, you know, it was, it was a long time coming. Um I think making 1917 was like, I mean, I had always wanted to write a big war movie like it had been my dream. To kind of do that, you know, I grew up watching like The Dirty Dozen and Saving Private Mine, like all that stuff with my grandfather, my mom and my grand. Like we were all kind of like we loved a good war movie. Um, so I think like that was on my bucket list and I didn't think I'd get to it so quickly. <laughs> um, I'm very <laughs> surprised that it 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 kind of beautifully fell into my lap. Um, and yeah, and I knew a lot about the First World War and, I and you know, I'm a big nerd. So I read a lot of history books. But I had never had such a kind of like window into a first-hand account of that war. So that was like, I'm, I'm a big believer in research, research everything. Sometimes I end up doing horrific things for research, working in a burn unit in Connecticut, like all kinds of weird stuff. But for this, the research was like just reading and delving into that world and and the first-person mindset of that war. And that was probably one of the most harrowing things that I'd ever sort of come across and like bear in mind like I've listened to the confession tapes of of the world's most prolific serial killer like I I have listened to some bad stuff and I think the real kind of like point for me at which that came home was when I went out to France to kind of I literally did the walk that, that the two characters do in the film I did the exact same kind of like journey to see how it felt and what kind of landscape you would pass through. And you keep coming across these little cemeteries that are just kind of like where where men were killed, where people fell. And every single cemetery, every person was younger than me. And I don't feel that old. Like I'm 34 now. I was 32, 31, 32 at the time. Um, and and I and to me, like it was men that went to war, like big men, adult men. And actually that journey taught me it was boys, it was kids. And and that was something that I think then Sam and I like massively digested with quite a lot of sort of like torment of understanding that and then wanted to put that in the film so I think that was like one of the moments and yeah also when you make a film like 1917 it's such a it's you know it's really hard to do a a one take movie (laughs) or a movie that looks has the appearance of a single take and and there's no traditional edit so there's loads of rehearsals so you know the the process took probably like two years of my life between like starting the script and then sitting in the cinema and watching your name come up in the credits uh so it was like a long time and in that time I formed you know relationships and friendships and and creative partnerships with so many people that I now count as like best friends I mean I met my partner on that film (laughs) um so it's like yeah it was a very kind of seminal life event for me.
0: Mm, Yeah I'm sure and and this is a Big question for four o'clock on a Tuesday, especially on a four-day hangover. But what are we preserving when, when we tell stories like nineteen seventeen? I mean, the film's obviously a massive spectacle. It's it, as a thrill ride. It's it's an incredible accomplishment. But is there kind of a a social function to telling stories like this one?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the First World War is now gone from living memory. There's no one alive that was in that war that fought in it. And I think, you know. The world learned lessons in that war, probably not fast enough. And it set the grounds for the Second World War. But it is like one of those events that completely and utterly shaped, especially in Britain, our collective consciousness. Um, And there's this idea of the good old days that I think gets bandied around a lot now. It's almost like a Brexit slogan, like, let's go back to the good old days. And I think a big part of reading those diaries and, and, and making that film was to remind people that war is not glossy or glory uh, or glamorous. It's not, it isn't kind of like, it's not something to be proud of. It's not, it shouldn't even be a last resort. That's my feeling about war. And, you know, when Sam and I set, set out to make this, we didn't in any way want to glorify war. And it, it's no mistake that the whole point of this story is two men trying to stop a battle. Like, yeah. it's, it, in my opinion, it's an incredibly anti-war war movie, which is what I think is the correct thing to do. um And yeah, and just to show people a first-hand account, like I, I think really good films are like 110 minutes in someone else's life. And I think the way that you know Roger and Sam and the whole team crafted this film was the pinnacle of that. It was really like you were moving every step with a character. Um, And that was just to remind people of like what these kids went through, like what they had to like live through and suffer and how there was no kind of like, you know, no one was coming back and talking to a therapist or, or having kind of like any sort of like mental health kind of, you know, involvement in any way whatsoever. And I think it's just like, just to be like, look, like people, people died for our rights and how important it is. And and yeah, so lots, lots of not glorifying war. That was what it was about. Mm.
0: (laughs) yeah there's there's a few things you've touched on there that really ring true to me about this film like there there's it's easy to imagine a bad version of this concept it's easy to imagine the one shot sort of style of the movie kind of feeling like a gimmick it's easy to imagine going the different a different narrative direction in which they're like uh, you know sort of giving the allies the upper hand and sort of courageously sending people in but instead as, as you say it's a mission to save lives, not not kill. And that feels really significant. Were there things that you, from the off, kind of traps you didn't want to fall into, things you said, we have to avoid this, this, this?
1: I mean, I think a lot of what we talked about was just grounding everything in character. So making it believable. Um, And there's like... I mean, writing a film like this, you encounter problems that I've never came across in any other films, like like how far you can push kind of the suspension of disbelief. Like, do you know what I mean? Like how, how far you can push any of that? Because the way that this film was intended to be told... Um, was the way that we actually live our day-to-day lives. There are no cuts. There are no edits. When you want to go and get a cup of tea, you have to wait for the kettle to boil, right? And so we as an audience have an understanding, unlike any other film. And and so it was really important when crafting that, you have to to believe that the characters would do it. Um, And any decisions the characters made had to be decisions that you yourself would make or or completely understood the making. Um, And then also just the idea of like, building a world that felt big and that you were transiting through it so like you mm. never wanted to see someone again because this yeah. France is huge like and when you're one person doing that journey you know it's like I can't remember how many miles but it's a lot <laughs> I, used to, I used to know the lines off by heart but I've, I've forgotten them. they're all replaced with last night and Soho lines now <laughs> but um but yeah so it, there's there's a this idea of like making it feel like every other character was on a journey that was bisecting our characters as opposed to servicing that car- our characters, our main character's journey. So it was all those kind of things. And then the biggest trap to not fall into is, you know, the assumption that people spoke like, OK, Pip, right over the top then, see you on the other <laughs> side, lots of love. Like, which just having read the first-hand accounts was not the case. And that's something that I think lots of people fall into when they think about the past they think oh this is how people spoke because they've watched you know a movie that was made in the 50s yeah. or 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 like <laughs> you know like using and i love blackadder but using blackadder goes forth as a, as a reference do you know what i mean like it's like you have to you have to make sure that anything that you fall into is grounded it's real it's believable especially in something like this where you need the audience to believe every step um and when you lose them you know like when you're writing a script You can lose them in a scene. You don't want to lose them in a scene, but you can lose them in a scene. And then when you cut, you know, you're reset and there's a mental, it's like you go into a different room. There's a mental kind of like agility to move around any issues from the last scene and you can buy back in. But we never had that. Like if we lost them, they were never going to buy back in. So it was like so important to like, there could be no flaws. Essentially, is what Sam and I felt. Um, And obviously there are some flaws in a finished film because you never get through anything. I'm not quite sure what they are because I really love it, (laughs) but um, I know they're there. And, um, but yeah, so that, that was, yeah, the the traps to fall into were mostly in dialogue and in um, stereotypes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I know for you that outlines are where you tend to experiment and where ideas are explored and then abandoned. And, you know, it's after that, that you lock in on the story that you're actually going to tell, and from the sounds of things, you know, your, your drafting process is actually pretty quick. But to kind of go back to the outlining process of 1917, was there anything notably different that you explored even for a moment in your original outline?
1: I mean, I love an outline. I love an outline. I love a treatment because here's my thing, right? And I'll, I'll make a plea to all writers out there. Imagine think, fixing your problems in 10 pages than in 150. Oh, honestly, <laughs> you'll save years of your life. Save it. Honestly, it's worth it. Um, so the outline process for 1917 was really quick. Um, I turned up at Sam Mendes' house I had brought all my World War I books and some of my grandfather's World War I books. I'd, I'd gone and dug them out of storage. We had a, we, and he also had a stack of books. We talked a little bit about what the characters would be, what the journey would be. And then we started just making a wish list of what we would want to see in a World War I movie. And I think that wish list is probably where we did most of the cutting that would then, because when we actually had the treatment, the treatment is the exact same as the script. Um, it's like it's the only time in my entire career and it probably will be the only time in my entire career that you can look at a treatment that you wrote and go wow this is the script um, obviously there's more in the script but like essentially the journey the structure is all there and um, in no way shifted and I've never had that before but the, yeah the, the, our wish list I think involved a gas attack I had a whole sequence in my head about a gas attack that was um, that would have been Schofield In a crater in no man's land or somewhere, gas was out and gas is heavy. So it sinks to the bottom of a crater. So I had this whole thing that I had had like really in my head. So he was in the crater. There's Germans above the crater shooting across, but he can't stay in the crater because the gas is filling it. So you've got this whole kind of like push and pull in 1917. They didn't yet all have the proper gas mask. You're literally talking about like cloth wrapped around your face, sometimes soaked in urine. So like not really, not really any defense for chlorine gas. So I had this idea for that. And then I, I remember Sam wanted him on a motorbike. And to be fair, I wanted him on a motorbike as well, because I love motorbikes. And I think those early, like, you know, like those Harley ones. Oh my God. So cool! I just wanted to see one of them on set. Um, and then there was maybe maybe other stuff but a lot of that kind of fell away very quickly because again we came back to the: can we make this a believable story that someone could go through in you know 24 hours or less than 24 hours and there's only so many modes of transport you can get on before you're a bit like oh okay like um now we're walking now we're on a motorbike now we're in a boat now we're doing this and it, so it felt like we started just hacking at these things
0: yeah, you don't want to make planes, trains, and automobiles no, the war version. No,
1: the war, can you imagine World War I planes, trains, <laughs> automobiles? Mm, not terrible, yeah. there's something in there. <laughs> uh, but yes, I think we wanted just to feel, or the, we wanted the audience to feel like that the journey didn't feel too long, that the, the actual kind of distance they had to cover was hard but not impossible, um, that the obstacles that they would encounter would feel surmountable if only just... Um, And in some cases, you know, poor Blake's not surmountable. Um, And that there would be enough of the sort of like just a bit of of surrealness to it, because, I mean, war and life does have that in it. Um, Especially when you're kind of high adrenaline in these sort of situations, there's always something that happens that kind of takes you by surprise. Um, And then, yeah, just a lot of like grounding it in nature as well, which I think that's one of the reasons you want to have different landscapes that you move through because we couldn't have scenes. We couldn't have cuts. You didn't want it just to be brown sepia toned mud the whole way through. So it was a lot of cutting out to preserve that and anything that felt like a double beat or anything that we felt like we didn't hit once well, we would throw both ideas out and then go back to the drawing board. But it was all very quick. I mean, we had like, I left there with maybe a bullet point outline, this scene, this scene, this scene, like just very kind of, and then wrote it up into a longer treatment. And it went back and forth a couple of times. We never changed the structure. It was always changing, like, the characters and what their experience had been, what, what Battle Schofield had been in before we meet him, where Blake had come from. Like, it was more of those discussions, which as a writer is, like, so lovely to have that with the director as well. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Script Apart, the treatment was very similar to the finished film. <laughs> well.
0: <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, well, I'm sure we're going to hear... About some of the ways in which it was very difficult writing a screenplay for a film with this uh, these kind of technical constrictions. But at the same time, it must have been liberating to a degree because when I approach kind of film projects myself, I'm always kind of like uh, looking for originality and worried if I know there's overlap with this film in that same genre or anything like that. Presumably, making 1917, knowing that it's such an original, it's gonna be, this story is gonna be delivered in such an original way must kind of liberate you to know originality is covered so I can just tell the story that feels authentic and, and organic here.
1: Yeah, that's such a nice way to put it. And I wish I had heard that before when I was in the press tour. I would have stolen it. <laughs> um, I, I love a restriction. Um, I like. I think when you start with a restriction, it pushes you to be creative in, in kind of other ways. So I, like, I'm a big fan of that. I also love working with Sam Mendes (laughs) Um, and the people that he brings to that, you know, Dennis Gassner, Roger Deakins, Pippa Harris, Jane Ann Tengren, like these people are so unbelievably brilliant at their jobs and astute. As a writer, you can can give them anything. There's nothing that you can conceive of that they cannot achieve. Um, And that's like so freeing that that would maybe have been incredibly daunting had I not had the restriction in place. Um, You might have tried to go too big, too soon or too far. Um, And so, yeah, I love a restriction. And I I think if you impose them on yourself as well, I mean, Sam and I didn't know if this was going to work. Like we wrote it on spec. Like no one paid us to write this because we didn't want to sell it because we genuinely didn't know if we could do it. Um, And so when we sat down to write it, the script was proof of concept. First of all, that you could shoot it in that way. But um, that was more in Sam's head. But but mostly, second of all, um, that it would hold as a narrative, that it would that it would work as a story, and that in that script you wouldn't get bored, you wouldn't wander off, or you wouldn't be desperate for a cut. Um, and so, yeah, it was a restriction we put on us that we didn't know if we could actually <laughs> physically overcome. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised when we did. But it took a while. It took it took a few drafts. For me personally, I did a couple of drafts before I even sent them off before I was like, no, okay, this works.
0: Mm. And was it always 1917? Was that always the title you came back to?
1: Yeah, there was a I think there was a brief window where the studio had maybe said to us, can we have a list of other titles? Um and I always fought for 1917. I must say Sam came up with that. Like that was on the, the bullet point document that we wrote. Um, I think it was him I'll let him take the credit Um, uh, I always thought 1917 was nice because it's well I like a short title (laughs) Last Night in Soho you know obviously not so short but I like a short (laughs) title Um, it places you exactly in time you know it's near the end of the war Um, you know that some wars happened it's not too prescriptive And it's also generic enough that you're not like this is the story of of Schofield, of Lance Corporal Schofield, because the other point of making this film was in a way to have anyone feel like their loved one or that they could be Schofield, you know, to not make it so specific. And so kind of like this happened here and then to these men. so in a way that you could think, well, this might have happened to lots of men. Hey, this
0: is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. First, guys, we need to talk about Cave Day. Cave Day is the world's most focused community. They lead group focus sessions every day on Zoom to help you get more done in less time. If you write screenplays, I probably don't need to tell you that revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to shut out distractions and harness everything they've got to overcome obstacles, both internal and external. Cave Day is perfect for helping with that. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints and energising breaks. Members report they get two and a half times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy and Oscar-winning writers. Script Apart listeners can get a seven-day trial and 50% off their first month by using the promo code Script Apart. that's all caps, at checkout. Head to caveday.org to get involved. That's caveday.org. Support for today's episode of Script Apart also comes from We Screenplay. Making progress on your screenplay can be an incredibly isolating experience. You've completed a draft, but what next? That's where Wii Screenplay comes in. Not only does We Screenplay have amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, they're also the industry's number one script coverage service. Looking for notes on your short script, TV pilot or feature film? With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback that's tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career. From folks writing their first script, all the way to Oscar winners and longtime producers. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings, hands-on workshops and once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunities that We Screenplay has to offer. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay are here to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. That's a great note to lead into the actual script itself. We begin on a meadow. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. We begin on a meadow, April 6th, 1917. A rolling landscape, the rustling of leaves and birdsong. Thunder rumbles in the distance. There is no rain. A figure lies against a tree, eyes closed. This is Schofield. Early 20s, soft features. A man is sleeping next to him on the grass. Blake, 19, youthful, strapping. In these first few pages, as they're ordered to kind of walk through the trenches... You pack in these allusions to their lives back home, Myrtle's having puppies, says Blake, and we get a sense of their humour and their camaraderie. I guess I should ask you, who who were these guys to you? And was it a challenge finding ways to show their personalities in such a propulsive, non-stop movie?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to find any time for exposition at all. Yeah. Um, it's not even so much a question of finding time for it, because as a writer, you can manufacture time. It's one of my favourite things. Um, but it's really difficult to have exposition when you're watching a film that you experience the way you experience life, because, for instance... I, one of my, you know, my business partner, Jack Ivins, who I spend almost every day with, I never wake up in the morning next to him. I don't usually unless we've been very drunk at the office, but I never wake up and go, I miss home. I miss my mother because he already knows that about me. We've spent so much time together. He's reading that from me. Um, and it's not the way people speak. And again, you know, when you make reality, you're sort of guiding light. You have to think, how do people speak? And so exposition has to be so masked. And so there's there's some there's some stuff in there that I don't know if anyone would even pick up in the film, for instance. um, And I think it's a few paragraphs later. uh, We talk about Schofield's uniform is the same as Blake's, apart from Schofield has a wound bar, which is just a tiny bar on the I think on the right arm. Um, And it was just to say that Schofield had been hurt. And that's actually almost more for the actor. Um, that's more of a hook for for George McKay when, when we were originally getting into it than it is for the audience to read, but someone will get it. But it's also it's like he carries that uniform differently. And the other thing I should say is that every department worked on making them characters. So like if you look at the costume department, for instance, like the work that's gone into differentiate between Blake and Schofield's costumes is unbelievable. You know, Blake's is newer it's like everything about it, it's like it's, it's still got the starch, it's Still, it's not been that worn in. Schofield's is like kind of cobbled together out of a couple of different ones. There's marks that have been sewn. I mean, the, the detail, the intricacies, they start in the script, but they then ripple all the way through. And when you're working on a film like this, you have to know that that's going to happen so you don't over-egg the pudding in the script. Um, but yeah, it's finding little bits, like Myrtle's having puppies, because, you, you know, I would have probably agonised for ages over that line, as to what would you what would you tell someone that you'd spent every day with as news from home that can't be too deep? But it's like just that sense alone, And it's like that the idea of the world moving on without you. Like, I would want to see if my dog had puppies. And actually, Myrtle's the name of Sam's dog. Um,
0: oh, got, really? Yeah,
1: we've got loads of I mean, almost all the characters in 1917, um, like all the sort of extra characters are named after my friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of them in there. Uh, and a couple of them actually worked on the film. So you had like... Um, like Private Rossi and then my friend Mark Rossi being like, they keep calling for Rossi, is that me? Because he's an AD and I was like, no, Private <laughs> Rossi. So there's all that kind of in there as well. But there's little like hooks as to like who these guys are and like the idea that that Schofield's hidden food, he's kept some food for later because he's, he's probably been in the position where he's run out of food. Many men in that war were like trapped behind enemy lines or trapped in no man's land, starving. Um, whereas Blake hasn't, he's not got any clue about that. So he's, you know, kind of like just hungry and going to eat it right away. And also the fact that Schofield will share it with him in this sort of like brotherly dynamic that forms. Um, I'd love to take credit for all of that, but it's great, great actors, good direct, um, excellent maison scene, all that stuff helps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that idea of Like hiding entire stories in tiny little details. That's something that continues through the script. In the pages that follow, as the guys get their kind of they get their mission and they they walk through the trench, we have we start to see like these little instances of world building, and a lot of them kind of allude to just the absurdity of war. Andrew Scott's character (laughs) asking Schofield to clear up a bet amongst them amongst him and his boys, what day is it? Like that's such an efficient, effective insight into just like War is so disorientating, you don't know it's up from down, you don't even know what day it is. Can you tell me about like um, little details like that? So, were were things like that the result of that research that you said uh, you carried out earlier on, sort of looking into the actual accounts of soldiers and their experiences?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of stuff came from research. I think, you know, that Andrew Scott scene, Sam goes to me lieutenant leslie i'm thinking of andrew scott and i just remember being like yes right okay let's still <laughs> fucking, let's go the kitchen sink at this scene and see what we can do um do so you want just a just a total moment of madness before they go over into no man's land um and yeah there was definitely there was like i mean books of dialogue that were that real like real soldiers had said or written down that i would then kind of like had a, just a research pack that I would go through and be like well that's quite interesting how to expand but they're also just I suppose they're they're the result of like agonising over these things and you know the first time I write a scene it will be ten times too long and then it's like cut and cut and cut so you feel like you're getting to the tip of the iceberg and you only want the tip of the iceberg there to show, but there's, there's a kind of, there's something underneath there's a current, there's like seeing words that are spoken that mean a bit more than they do. That's something I love to do as a writer. I love to overwrite scenes, just for myself and then go back through and be like, well, what is inessential essential here? What's needed? And also Sam is totally fucking ruthless with that kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> Where Sam is totally ruthless with that kind of stuff. If there was anything in it that he was like, this isn't earning its keep, like it'd be gone. So I spent ages really kind of like massively going through any of the dialogue and being like, is this, is this the best version of this dialogue? Does this do 10 things at once? So there was, yeah, there was such a high bar. To, to meet for
0: everything. Yeah, I've actually got a question from one of our Patreon supporters here, Griffin Beer, who wanted to know that, um, he, he read in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter that you were constantly refining the dialogue on set. And um, yeah, he, he was just interested in uh, if there were any sort of specific scenes that you can recall having to do that, any particular uh, instances of dialogue that you can point to in the film as having been punched up on set.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we spent... I mean, at least six months in rehearsals with all the actors. You know, George and Dean were there every day, like, and we and we built every scene. And Sam would direct them from like literally from blocking, directing like early stages right the way through. And we would constantly be refining the dialogue through that process as well. So even before I got on to set, I was essentially in the rehearsal room refining the dialogue. Sam and I, um, because we knew there was never going to be a cut. There's very little chance to change dialogue afterwards, like bits of ADR here and there, but so kind of like sparse. Um, And so essentially we were sort of doing the edit as we were doing the rehearsals. And in fact, the editor was on set a lot as well um, and paid such a crucial role in that too because we needed a brain trust to be like, is this enough? Um, I think there was times where I had said to Sam, I just don't think this is enough. And the time that really rattled me throughout um was the scene with Richard Madden and George McKay at the end so when when Schofield gets to Lieutenant Blake Blake's brother and I thought this is the scene that the whole movie is built to and there's so much emotional catharsis to just smash onto the scene and I wrote probably 200 versions of it constantly and Sam would be like just wait just wait and I was like no, no no I need to be ready I'm going to be this this when we shoot this the day we shoot this because I think we only had Richard Madden for maybe like a day in rehearsal so it was all very kind of like tight so it was like we must just get there and I remember kind of like literally going on to set that morning with like six alternative versions already typed up in my big script like ready ready for the call because um, sometimes you would get the call, and it's really nerve wracking standing there in front of Sam Mendes, Roger Deakins, and Benedict. <laughs> and like, I came up with other lines, no problem. Yes, here they are. So I was like ready for it. And um, Sam called me to his trailer and was like, "We're just going to do a little read through of it with with Richard and George." And I was like, "Okay, great." And I was like, "Just really pay attention, be in the zone here." And they they did the scene just sitting down, and I cried. And Sam was like, "I told you." He was like, he's like, they can act, it's going to be enough. And then, see, when they did it on set, I mean, we did maybe like, I say eight or nine takes of that scene, tiny variations. Because yeah. Richard and George are such great actors, like, they'll just, it's almost like moving a cruise ship, like, you do it just by degrees each time. And every time I wept. And I went up to Sam afterwards and I was like, I've, I've learned a really important lesson here. <laughs> like I've learned probably the most important lesson of my career, which is that actually the, the complete lack of dialogue and just the emotion on an actor's face. After you've set, set up all the dominoes, you don't actually need to be the one to push them down. It'll fall on its own. Um, and I suppose it's like it's one of the scenes I'm most proud of. Um even though it's it's just the original version of it. it's, it's the original like kind of like version that Sam Mendes was like, Yeah, yeah, just wait, just wait, just wait. And I was like, I just think there needs to be this, and there needs to be that. And I was like, what about this, what about that? And he was like, just relax, Christy. Very yeah. strange, you know, which I, I suppose comes from years of working with just the highest calibre of talent and in theatre.
0: Hmm. Yeah, resisting the urge to overwrite must be I mean <laughs> It's a tricky thing. Like there's a moment when uh, one of my favourite moments in the film is when Blake and Schofield have that discussion about how the medal that he was given, he he swapped for a bottle of wine with a French soldier because it's just a bloody bit of tin. It doesn't make you special. These soldiers weren't the most expressive with their emotions, especially after the horrors that they've experienced. Mm. So instead, you have to you seem to sneak in glimpses of their feelings and their disillusionment into like the stories they trade with each other and often they they end sentences they the sentences don't conclude was that a tricky thing as a screenwriter kind of finding authentic ways to give these characters interiority when at that time people didn't speak at war people don't communicate openly about their emotions
1: i mean Yes and no. I think that's also one of the myths of the First World War, you know, that stiff upper lip. Because like in a lot of the first hand accounts I read, those men that were together at the front, they would talk within their own kind of confined circles of what they had seen. Don't get me wrong, of course, there were some who just couldn't. And and so much so much of I think that trauma is also not apparent to them themselves. Uh and I, like you know, having been around people and listened to people and and knowing some people that have gone through some terrible things, I do understand that that's how people talk. People are trying to share, but lack the ability to express so much, myself included, um, even fantastic therapists. But it's like, it's so difficult to know yourself and to make someone else understand that. Um, and so I felt like the way that they stop talking is sometimes incredibly natural. It's like, it's got a bit too hard. It's got a bit too scary, or your your brain itself just gone no no more al- along that line of thought. So that that I guess was just a sort of a desire to further the naturalism of the film. And I think the little bits of exposition. I mean, Sam and I agonised over every single the first the very f- actually there was one other restriction that just remembered now there was one other restriction that we when the, when I went away to write the first draft, Sam said to me, no exposition one shot, no exposition. And I went, ha, okay, great. And I remember phoning him up. I think I was on page 30 and I phoned him up and I said, some exposition. And he went, okay, some (laughs) exposition. Um, But because we'd started from a place of zero and and such low tolerance for it, everything stuck out. So you would go back through. But again, it's like, you have some exposition in there and then when you get into rehearsals with the actors in this case, it's a case of like, okay, that's been internalized. I can now see that you're portraying that. We no longer need that line. So it's like rip, rip, rip. And that's so much fun to do. There's nothing more satisfying than deleting like dialogue. Apart from, <laughs> I mean, my favorite as a writer is when you're trying to work on a scene, you like, I've no idea how to fix this and you realize you don't need it. Oh, the sweet relief of that. <laughs> <laughs> Control, delete. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we follow the characters into No Man's Land, which is so visceral. And it, it's really fascinating reading the script, seeing how how sensory the screenplay is, like all the sort of sights, sounds, smells that you get a sense of watching the film. They really did begin at, screen, at screenplay level. Where you talk about the, a world that's lunar and empty, earth pounded to atoms, putrid smells, uh, ground-like treacle. It is very kind of... Um, yeah, you can feel, you can sense it. Um, the the characters, they then end up, of course, at that abandoned farm when we have the heartbreaking plane crash sequence. Let's talk about Blake's death. Um, the heartbreak of this moment is that he's just trying to do the right thing and it gets him killed. Um, it seems to speak to like the impossibility of kindness in war. W- what was the decision to kill Blake? Um, it, it, was it a case of wanting to give Scofield a personal mission to go on something more than just an obligation to his country?
1: I think we, I mean, killing Blake was always on the cards. We were always going to kill one of them. And it was always going to be Blake. Um, Because I think I mean, that war, the death toll in it was unimaginable. I mean, entire villages lost all their young men. In fact, some places all their male population. Um, You couldn't have had a war movie without death in it. I mean, especially not a first world war movie. So we always knew we were going to kill Blake. And it's important to kill someone you know. A lot of war movies do this thing where they kill forty thousand extras. And you're like, "God, oh, that's that's a cool sequence. But for me, like the important part was like, no, wars war is hell <laughs> to paraphrase. Um like it's it's someone you love dying in. And I can't, I can't write a script in which you understand six million men dying in the mud. But I can write you loving one of those men and understanding his death. So that scene was always going to be the like big emotional scene. And um, yeah, the, the thing that I think we got away with it so well is because we actually put it in a point structurally that people don't die at. So people usually die in the, the bridge to the second act, so in between the first and second act, or in the bridge to the third act, or at the very end. That's when traditionally characters die in movies, especially yeah. characters. And we killed him at the midpoint. It's the exact midpoint of the film. And we did it so that the minute you he's stabbed, you think, okay, the movie's now going to be about getting Blake to an aid station. The movie's now going to be this. And actually Sam did something in directing that left me totally kind of just like, And all of his brilliance is like when we were first blocking through that sequence, Blake was on the ground and in the script, Blake was on the ground originally. Um, And then Sam went to Dean, get up. After you've been stabbed, get back up. And he gets up and he stumbles and then he realizes how badly he's bleeding and then he falls. And see that get up to me was like, oh, my God, because you do, you think he's going to be okay? He's got up got up and it totally changed the entire dynamic of that scene obviously quickly written by me into the draft I was like <laughs> genius 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 <laughs> sitting in like the corner of like a little room in Shepparton's studio I was like <laughs> um, but that sequence I think it just had to be everything that was sad about the war distilled into one scene there's that in the scene in the basement with the French girl and the baby yeah, uh, yeah. Those two people were meant to be the proxy for an entire generation destroyed and waylaid um And yeah, it's not easy. The, the, my favorite part about that, I was writing it. I was writing that scene in a hotel room in Paris because I'd just done my walk in, in Northern France, and I'd gone to Paris with my mom to try and like get some of the horror of that out of me. And my mom was proofreading the script for me, and I'd finished that scene like on a Wednesday morning at hotel and I gave it to her. I was like, can you read this? And she turned around to me and she went crying. She went, you ruined my holiday and threw this back at me. And I was like, yes, I fucking nailed that. Cause it needed to be that. You needed to be so fucking angry with me that I did that. Mm. <laughs> and she was. <laughs> I'm
0: glad you mentioned the baby because that's, uh, Another another great example of some of the tenderness that's a counterpoint for like those moments of brutality, like Blake's death. I mean, there's there's that wonderful moment a little later on where Schofield's gone over the waterfall, he's almost drowned, and he emerges in this kind of like river, kind of covered in like those cherry blossom leaves, which seems to be a callback to the the blossom yeah. leaves that he sees with um with Blake earlier on in the film, and then of course he follows that song wayfaring stranger and that's like it's such an eerily beautiful moment where did that come from
1: um so a whole bunch of stuff so the the baby in the basement came from a true account and it was the saddest account I read um and I, I mean I ripped it off completely um because it was like this soldier is in this basement and he's stolen milk like three days before and he feels so guilty that he stole milk from this French guy and it's, it's a British soldier on the retreat And he finds himself in this basement. He's got no idea why he's in this war. Like, he can't understand it. He's watched his entire, like, basically, unit be mowed down. And he comes across this woman and this baby and the baby's starving. And he goes, I have milk. And he wrote in his diary, it was the only time in my whole life that I felt like I'd been put in a place for a reason. So, so powerful. And then the punch of that was he said, what's the baby's name to the French woman? And she says, I don't know. It's not my baby. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, I get goosebumps now even just still thinking about reading that for the first time because it's, it just tells you everything you need to know about that war. So that that's all kind of like that reality. And so is uh, a soldier stumbling across a concert in woods. But the concert actually had a piano in it. Um, and I I had, in the original draft, there was a piano uh, and um, with keys missing and someone playing a tune on it that was haunted by empty kind of like missed notes. Um, and like, And so they came across that right before an attack. And it was basically a group of soldiers who had found this playing a tune for themselves before they went over the top. So we loved that. And so those two kind of bookended that, but everything that really happens after Schofield gets shot in the, in the helmet is sort of meant to be more dreamlike and more surreal. So I was trying to anchor some of that with points of like, well, this happened in reality and this happened in reality but then juxtaposing those things. So he saves a baby in that basement and then he walks out and he's literally having to kill a young German man who's, who, I mean, looks like. A um, and so it's just this idea of like, you know, you're here in this place and you're doing a nice thing and then right outside, you don't want to have to do it, but you're stuck. And that, that sequence, him fighting the German boy uh, was massively inspired by all quiet on the Western front. When, when he fights the uh, the German fights the Frenchman, in the divot in no man's land and has to stab him and then says, I'm sorry, I never wanted this. So it was like pulling on all these sort of sources to build something that felt like it had a concussive force, like it was rolling. Um, And then, you know, you've got the action sequence where he's getting shot at and there's a chase and then the water and that kind of smooths everything out because you can only keep people's heart rate at a certain level for so long. So you're as you're writing, you're constantly being like, okay, probably 90 beats per minute. Okay, maybe 120. Okay, well, get back <laughs> down. There was all that because again, no edit, so the pacing has to be in the script. It was all that as well. So yeah, there was so much drawn in reality, but a lot was taken to its like nth degree and its ultimate extreme so that you would feel like everything had sort of the world had fallen on its side. I think I maybe even wrote that in the script.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. There, there are readings of like the final, the final act in this film because it is so fantastical. The moment he wakes up with all those flares, kind of over the oh, there, there is a reading of it that this is he's been shot, and this is him imagining yes. things. Or you know, it's 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 curious. We could talk about that all day if we had time, but I must talk about the ending. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I can imagine. We t- we touched on it earlier. Schofield makes meets Blake's brother, played by Richard Madden. Yes, um, it's such a beautiful tragic ending. I, I can imagine the way it plays out is so perfect. But studios being studios, I can imagine sort of like some questioning of like. Is there anything more triumphant? Is there a a reward for his heroism that's more overt? Did you have anything like that? And were there moments where you contemplated a different finishing point for this film?
1: Um, The ending went through the most changes of everything. So in the very first draft that I wrote, the one I didn't even send to Sam, there was no Blake's brother. There was no Lieutenant Blake. And they were saving a bunch of men they'd never met. And I remember kind of getting through the script and feeling like this motivation is waning for me. It, especially after Blake dies, I was like, I don't know how Schofield has the strength to go on and to save these men he's never met because it's an idea of someone. It's not a person. And I phoned up Sam and it was actually my mum. My mum had read the script and she was like, I think you need to see the guys at the end. It's <laughs> <So> my mum. <laughs> you see the guys at the end so you know what they're fighting for. And I was like, you can't see them, you can't cut away. And I was like, well, what if you have someone who's Blake? What if you have a chance to save Blake? And so Blake's brother comes out of that. And I remember I phoned up Sam and I pitched it to him and he went, yeah, do it, do it right now. Um, so he liked that. So that that was one of the big changes. The other change was originally he didn't come out over the parapet. He went through it. Um, and we never quite managed to, and this, this would have all been in like, just like revision drafts um, before it even went into the studio. We were always kind of like Sam and I would sit together and be like, what's the, what's the big thing? What's the thing we've been waiting for? Because the the being in the trench felt a lot like being in the tunnel, and we didn't want repetition. So that, yeah, and I was like, well, what? Let, let's put him out in no man's land again. Let's get him up. And so that was that was that. So we, those were those things that were solved. The 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 lines that Benedict Cumberbatch said as well. There was loads of versions of that because that's like the anchor point. I've saved it. Um, so yeah, the, the ending, the st- although the structure never changed, there was a lot of kind of just like constant twisting and twisting and twisting to try and get that tension and that catharsis and that payoff up there to the level it needed to be, especially after that sequence in the town. Because that's was yeah. so high, you needed to then, then somehow push again, which we were, you know, like really, it's a struggle. Um, and then, yeah, with regards, you know, we had such great... Studio backing, like, you know, Jeb Brody and Steven Spielberg were with Amblin, like who just totally believed in it and and understood exactly what it was going to be. And Universal as well. And I think, I mean, obviously, you know, it's Sam Mendes and he's one of the greatest living directors. So you don't need to give him too many notes. I think he's got such a great instinct for it. But yeah, to the credit of, of the studio and all the producers we I mean, work with, they understood that the ending should have a, a huge kind of like base note that it shouldn't feel like oh we solved it we fixed the war Um, (laughs) this wouldn't have been true and also it just it wouldn't have been the kind of movie that sam and i wanted to make um or that anyone would have wanted to make i think i think having a hollywood ending on that where he gets there in time wouldn't have felt true um and wouldn't have felt like we were telling the story of so many of these young men that died in the mud for nothing. I mean, for inches of land that were then lost. So I think, yeah, when you when you have that subject matter, when you have that material, you have to let that imbue every part of your work um, and the structure and the story and the characters. And so, yeah, I suppose in a way, the ending was forced upon us by our own subconscious. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the ending, the ending had the most changes, or the final act had the most changes, but it was always always just in furtherment of what we had set out in the, the first and second <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And we're running out of time, but I must ask, you know, since since 1917, you've worked on so many great projects. I'm so excited to see last night in Soho. The good nurse sounds amazing. Star Wars. <laughs> A plucky, a plucky young, uh, a plucky little film called Star Wars. Yeah, You're no one's doing really any, uh... heard of
1: that stuff. I don't know. I think it, I think it'll be big eventually. I, yeah, fingers crossed. It. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, what are the lessons that you think you learned on this project that have carried over into into those?
1: I mean, I think for me, the biggest lesson is understanding how much actors can do, um, which you know, I'd had maybe some knowledge of, I'd always been on set for, since I did Penny Dreadful, I'm always on set for everything I write. Um, so I had some knowledge of, but then working, I mean, literally sitting right next to Sam Mendes and watching him create kind of that, which is such a great lesson. And I took that through that sense of economy and and letting people act as opposed to telling people or showing or how their faces should move or what their emotions should be. Um, and I suppose the other big thing, for me, and this predates this film, but it was only kind of shinned through. it, is is just the value of listening, of like, and I and I I mean, like, listening to other people, listening to collaborators, but also listening to yourself. Don't trying to impose something on, a, like, a script. Being like, why why isn't this working? It's usually you know you are the script at your very soul, or it's very kind of like kind of inception. It's you that you're putting on the page or some version of that. And I think when you have problems with it, sometimes they're just structure, but usually it's because you've gone down a path that doesn't feel authentic. And so for me, with this, having such a burden put on you of having it feel like reality in the end was the greatest lesson I learned. Because it's like, well, how do you make something feel so authentic that people go with it, that people think it really happened?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been an absolute blast christy thank you so much you've got my email if you want to make the wartime version of plane train planes and automobiles <laughs> well, it's a
1: core right now because it's well you at least get story by right you'll at least get by.
0: i'll take it i'll take it um thank you so much i hope to have you back on the show at some point to last night in soho with edgar yeah, oh yeah um, no that would
1: be so much fun we would love that this is great yeah thank
0: you. <laughs> all right christy i'll let you go but thanks again so much for coming on script apart
1: thank you al cheers
0: You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.